Welcome. My name is Nathan Illman, and this is Beneath the Armour podcast, the place where healthcare professionals talk about what it's like to be them in this challenging field, and a place where listeners can come to feel connection through shared experience. Welcome, everybody. If it's your first time here, then welcome to the journey that is Beneath the Armour. I'm feeling very inspired having listened back to today's conversation. My intention with this podcast was to have reflective, raw conversations with healthcare providers about what they do, who they are, and I guess who they've become. And this episode was an absolute treat. For people who don't know me, I'm a clinical psychologist and coach, and I run a business working with healthcare providers such as nurses to help them build confidence, learn skills to take care of themselves, and get clear about what it is they want out of their lives and careers. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Alicia Perkins. Alicia is a lecturer in nursing at Federation University in Australia. She's held a variety of leadership positions in the past when she worked clinically, notably as the manager of various cardiac catheter laboratories. Alicia and I had met through somebody else that I'd actually got in touch with to come on the podcast. Uh, She was a referral, if you like, and her and I had spoken once before this conversation and we really got on, found that we had a lot in common with respect to our vision towards healthcare. And as with all my other conversations, really, it was just an absolute delight to chat to her. As you'll see, we cover plenty of ground in this chat. Alicia talks about the realities of nursing, the spectrum of emotions one confronts through doing this important work, and she candidly shares some of her own experiences. So she talks about the stress that's involved in nursing and trauma, essentially, and how this can affect nurses and other frontline and kind of second-line healthcare providers. I found great wisdom in this conversation with Alicia, and I'm not even a nurse, so I imagine nurses listening to this will find it really helpful, probably junior nurses, but I think people who are of all levels of seniority will find some wisdom in the things that Alicia says. So I hope you enjoy the show today, and if you like it, please consider sharing it with a colleague, a friend, or even a network of people that you think might like it. So enough from me for now, let's take it away. Here is Alicia Perkins. Lisa, thanks for joining me on Beneath the Armour podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, thank you. Thanks for asking me to be here. Absolute pleasure. Um, so I guess just to sort of kick us off, I'd be really curious to know, you know, what's going on in your world at the moment, whether it's your personal, professional life, what are some of the things that you've kind of been pondering? Um, yeah, if we could just start with that, it'd be great. <laughs> That's what I've been pondering. Yeah. Uh, well... At the, at the moment, there's so much to ponder, isn't there, Nathan? COVID-19 mm. is on everyone's mind, and I'm sure everyone's probably sick of hearing about it and talking about it, but it's right there in our faces every day. And, uh, you know, so many of us are juggling so much, juggling work from home, um, seeing how working... I think I've been working from home now since early March. I haven't seen the inside of my office since um, the early part of March, and... I guess just the the constant moving, um, I, I guess more about being um, flexible about how we're approaching work or how I'm approaching work. And so just every day trying to fit everything in and 
trying to maintain a life where I'm working from home when a lot of the time I feel like I'm living at work because that's what it's like at the moment. And being an academic and um, a nursing academic in this space during COVID-19 is really um, quite challenging because the students are really, really anxious. So um, as you know, my role at the university is in managing the clinical program of the Bachelor of Nursing. And the clinical program is really, um, has been quite impacted by COVID-19. And so trying to source enough clinical placements for our students, we can't do that at the moment because there's a lot of placements that have been lost. And just managing the fallout from that, I guess, the understanding, managing, um, supporting the students, I guess, so there's a lot of the students are very, very anxious about how they're going to finish their program. So supporting the students, um, on top of the usual everyday, everyday run of the mill stuff that we do, and uh, fitting all that into being at home with the kids. So two children who are schooling from home as well, and um, making sure that I'm able to divide my time and give them the sort of support that they need as well. So I just spent an hour today doing um helping my youngest daughter with her maths test. So doing a little bit of teaching, <laughs> teaching in <laughs> academia, teaching in primary school, teaching in high school. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of things to, yeah. So I guess that's um, that's the current state of affairs with me. But, yeah, I think the biggest thing at the moment is making sure, trying to create a balance um, at the moment is really is the biggest challenge. That's something I'm always interested to ask other people how they how they manage that because I actually just had a conversation with my wife where she was telling me that um, I'm not particularly good at, at relaxing, <laughs> which is, which was quite interesting. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I think we're sort of talking about it and a lot of the activities that I might do, which, which may appear to be re- like, you know, relaxing, sometimes reading and things, they're a bit more actually goal directed. I'm trying to get something out of it rather than just, you know, chilling out um, so I'm always curious about other people who are busy and, you know, have a lot going on in their lives, how they manage that sort of balance between work life and family life. And um, do you have any strategies you use to sort of, um, you know, I suppose creating boundaries for yourself? What do you, what do you put in place to help make that work for you? So, I wasn't doing it very well up until a couple of weeks ago. It has been a very tough, tough year. And I will admit that I had my first weekend off only two weeks ago since March. And that's really bad. So I've been struggling to keep work, getting, keeping on top of things at work as well. And so I've been doing it really badly, bad job of that balance. And I thought, and I've got some sort of self, um, uh, self-control self mechanisms that I do have where I find that I start sounding really narky. I go, hang on a minute, that's not me and I have to pull it back. And so one of the things, so one of the things that I do uh, is I really desperately need time by myself and I don't have that at the moment because I've got the children 24-7 because school is here, work is here, everything's here. And so I'm fine. I've found that that time at night after the kids go to bed has been my saviour. Unfortunately, though, what that has meant is that I'm staying up too late and I'm not getting enough sleep. So um, I've pulled it back a bit, reined it in, and I've started 
reading for pleasure for the first time in a long time. I've stopped reading emails. I've stopped reading articles and um, setting aside time every night to read for pleasure before I go to bed. And I'm making myself go to bed before midnight, whereas two o'clock in the morning is not was not an unusual go to bed time for me. Right. Which <laughs> looking at your face, Nathan, with your nine o'clock in bed, yeah. uh, two a.m. <laughs> was becoming was becoming the norm for me. And I love that time of night. It takes me back to you know years of working as a clinician and being on night shift, which I quite like nights because you never have to wake up to an alarm. There's no six o'clock alarm when you're on night shift, so right. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, but that quiet at 2 a.m. is just it's yeah. really good mind resetting, but it's not healthy, so I've had, to, I've had to change that. So reading for pleasure, get to bed before midnight and get at least six hours sleep a night has been um, what's helped for me and uh, not working on the weekend. There's no emergency in education. That's what I have to keep telling myself. Yeah. I've worked in I've worked where there are real emergencies. What I do now is not an emergency. We just have to do the best we can every day and then get up the next day and do the best we can on that day and just get the job done. Do you think that's so something that's that, my current strategy? It's great that sorry. you've managed no sorry, it's great that you've managed to sort of yeah, try and try and change things a bit. I wonder, do you think that it's just something about when you're really ambitious and driven, it's quite hard to to stop because I think I, I find that it's like it, I just want to squeeze so much out of life and you know because I yeah. love what I'm doing and I know you really feel passionate about what you're doing it's yeah. it just feels hard to just put things down sometimes it, it, do you sort of feel that as well yes. oh absolutely and it's I think it's it is ambition because but it's also that drive to do a really good job I mm. can't do half a job I've never been able to do half a job and it's that driving force to do the best job possible and yeah, not just do it, but do it with <laughs> in a way that is going to make me feel good about what I've done. And I suppose it all it is a partly about ego. I think, you know, if if I would be lying if I said that part of it isn't being isn't true a drive through ego because we feel good when we're praised for a good job. I certainly feel good. And that's a, that's a further driver. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to feel valued in my work and that's, I guess that is part of ego. I mean, some people wouldn't like to admit that they're driven by ego, but let's face it, we all are to some degree. And I am driven by, you know, if someone says, you, you know, you're great at your job, that's a that's a great driver for me, and I'll do even more next time. I'm yeah. a perfect employee. Just tell me I'm doing a good job, and I'll do another one. <laughs> so, yeah, so <laughs> it is that. Yeah, that the need to do a good job, but ambition, but also the need to to do a good job um, certainly is a, a big driver for me. I love your honesty there. I think I think it's so important to recognise that and acknowledge it because we are all driven by our ego, you know, to a certain extent, and. Mm. I'm I'm similar, you know. I, I I like being um, acknowledged for the work I'm doing, and it does feel good to be praised. And I think I read something yeah. recently that was it was around leadership, and it sort of helped me think about um, things with the way I'd been working with junior colleagues and helping them to grow and develop. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it was sort of talking about how when you're you're sort of younger in your career and you're ambitious and very driven you are very much well often you, there's this pursuit of doing things well and you get lots of praise and recognition 
but but in order to sort of lead and influence effectively when you're in that more senior position if you just keep doing that you're not you're going to sort of neglect the needs of like growing the people who are more junior um, and actually recognizing their strengths and their abilities and their talents rather than just focusing on your relentless pursuit of you kind of climbing forward and getting recognition yeah. from other people um so yeah it sort of made me, made me think i had to sort of like check myself a bit recently like am i am i just focusing a bit too much on me here when i've already you know kind of um yeah. raised up a bit in my career and there's people below me who perhaps could do with a bit more of that nurturing and stuff um, oh yeah i remember in a, as a clinician and a clinical manager and a clinical educator um i would go into so if there was a situation that's like a um, an emergency situation i would go in and just take charge and you know be very systematic and get it all done and I had to remind myself to hang on a minute. If I continue to do this, I will be, I will be that person who is um, that the people think. Sorry, I'm sorry, Nathan. I forgot to put myself on do not disturb, so my emails keep coming in. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> um, I I will become that person that they think is indispensable and. But we're not, no one is indispensable. But you can, if you go in and take charge and take over and fix all the problems all the time, then all the staff around you do think you're indispensable. And part of growth, I think, is realising that you don't always have to be indispensable. You still are valued. Whether if, Even if you are dispensable, you're still valued. And in being dispensable, you allow those others to come in and be the ones to fix the problem. Um, and so I had to learn to step away and let the others come in and fix it and realise that I'm not the only one that can fix these problems. Others can fix it. But if I don't let them come and do it and practice it, um, they'll never get to that point. So, yeah, it's very important to step back it's a real let sh others yeah. shine. And on that point, how do you find delegation now? Because, I mean, you're obviously in your current role, there must be tons of things that you could probably do yourself if you thought, you know, well, maybe I could do that better or I'm going to do that quicker. But I know, again, from my experience more recently, as just and it's something I, I really try and work on is, mm -hmm. so, you know, just giving that to someone else. And, and actually, it's not a bad thing mm -hmm. that you've asked someone else to do something because other people have skills mm -hmm that they actually might be better yes. than you at doing something. So how, how do you find delegating? Oh, I was very bad at it previously. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot better at it now. But it's about, it's about respecting the people that work with you or, or you know, um, under you. Because whenever you don't delegate to someone else, you're kind of devaluing them. And so part of valuing them is to say, here's, here's a job which I think you can do. Um, and that would be a really, that would be really helpful for me. And um, yeah, so it's really important. I'm, I'm a lot better at delegating now, but it's about, um, yeah, it's learning to respect other people being able to do the job just as well, or as you said, in some cases, do it better. Um, previously, uh, when I, I worked, and, and it's different, different in different roles. So I had to grow through that again in this role previously, um, I was managing um, a cardiac intervention um, uh, laboratory and I remember getting to a point where I thought, I'm just really struggling. You know, when you're the most senior person there, I thought, oh, it's so hard. And I thought, 
I remember someone that I knew applied for a, um, a job in the lab where I was and he was more experienced than me in all facets of it. And I, I remember, and I think I was so, not burned out, but I was so tired that I really rejoiced. I thought, oh my God, someone, he's so much, he's even more experienced than me. That's someone who can come in and I can rely on to delegate stuff to. And I think that was a bit of a turning point for me as well, where I went, hang on a minute, it doesn't matter. Just because I'm the manager, I don't need to be the most experienced person. Let's get some more, some other people in with even more experience. And then it's, it's a lot easier to delegate stuff to and it takes so much pressure off. So yeah, it's, I think it's just that whole taking a step back and, you know, I guess, um, yeah, respecting everyone in your workplace and looking, looking for their individual, um, looking for their individual gifts as well and um, how you can make them shine by, you know, what they're really, you know, what this person's really good at, delegate that to those. And do you know what I mean? And just, yeah, getting, giving them the opportunity to, to use the things that they do well. And what, what are some of the conversations you have or what are the ways in which you do that? Or maybe not now, but or previously, like whether it's within um, sort of managerial conversations or supervisory relationships, um, do you explicitly lay that out and sit down? Or is there, is there a formal way in which you've tried to identify individual people's strengths? What, yeah, what's your sort of, or what has been your process for doing that? So... Yeah, it just, it just depends on the individual, doesn't it? I find that the formal processes sometimes work, in, but often it's got to be informal. And, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it's, you know, going for a coffee with someone and you have a chat and you develop, you, you know, learn a bit more about them and you think, oh, well, hang on a minute, this person could be really good in this, in this sort of role. And, but really just asking people, Nathan, I think that that's the, that's the biggest thing is asking people what they really want to do. Yeah. But then identify and, and getting to know someone, I, and there might be, but there's also people who you'll ask and they'll never want to do stuff because they don't want to put themselves forward. Sometimes that's because they just don't want the extra work. Um, and that's the bigger challenge, uh, just trying to encourage people to do to, to go a little bit further than they really have to because some people really do just want to go to work to get paid and walk away. And mm. one of the things that I've had to learn is I've got to respect that in people because some people, that's what they want to do. So as long as they do, they deliver care that's the best best practice and they do, do the right thing and they help their colleagues, if they want to walk away and not think about it until their next shift, I have to respect that. And that was one of the things I think, you know, I was thinking things that you might ask me. And um, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking there was one, <laughs> this person said to me, oh, this person they aspire to and they achieve mediocrity. <laughs> That's such an arrogant thing to say. But there are people who do who aspire to and achieve not mediocrity, but just the bare the, <laughs> the bare bones. Yeah. And one of the things I've had to do is to pull it back and not expect from people what I'm prepared to put in myself. Because too many times I've gone, why won't you do this? I'm doing it. Why aren't you? Yeah. So, well, hang on a minute. I shouldn't. Ex- I'd go above and beyond. I shouldn't expect people to to do the same thing. And so I guess it's about um, identifying those people who do want to extend themselves and do want to do that much more. And 
and supporting them and giving them the tasks and the tools, I suppose, the skill set to be able to achieve that. And then there's the people who you know could do more, but they don't want to because they uh, feel insecure or um, are worried that they won't do it. And in those instances, I've, um, particularly in the clinical, mostly in the clinical sphere, I've actually gone into um, the, the lab with them and, and, you know, worked through stuff with them and then step it back and step it back a bit more and step it back a bit more and give them the, the ability to see it in themselves that they can actually do it on their own and, um, yeah, and to see them develop that way, I think. Yeah, so it's individual strategies. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's like a kind of flexible approach depending on the person. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. The kids, are, oh no, they're right. They've gone. <laughs> they're just, uh, we've got a playground. I've got a playground in the backyard for them. They're just changing their changing their boots so they can go out. It's amazing. It sounds like you've got incredible resources um, and it's a great setup back home <laughs> with the farm, the playground. <laughs> Gosh, it sounds really great. But if you if you're going to have a good setup for COVID, <laughs> oh. I'm grateful every day for where I live yeah. during this, this pandemic. Yeah. And as we were saying the other day, to have kids who are close in age who actually love each other and like being with each other, um, that's, the, that's a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just going back to kind of the stuff we were talking about, I, I'm interested with, um, with your own uh, awareness and reflection about your own strengths and how you've developed. Do you do... Um, do you have any kind of practice whereby you, you, you know, you sit down and you, you know, I suppose developing self-reflection, do you do anything like journaling or have you had any kind of formal, I don't know, like, yeah, whether it's the formal discussions with a coach or other professional, like a mentor where you, where you consciously think about what you're doing well and the things that you want to work on? I've got a really interesting story about, mindfulness and well i think it's interesting yeah well, <laughs> i'll tell you i'll see you please do yeah. <laughs> so when i was so we talk about mindfulness you know with kids at school and we talk about it at work and we talk about it with students and i remember when i was a kid so i get really really overwhelmed by crowds noise i just i like quiet i don't like to be around lots of people i actually find it quite nerve-wracking and when i was a kid um and learning about mindfulness um just made me remember this and i thought when i was a kid every time i've never mowed lawn in my life i've never used a lawnmower in my life and i probably never will when i was a kid I would see the lawnmower come out and I go, the noise of the lawnmower used to make me really anxious when I was a really little kid. And I grew up as um, I told you on a cattle property um, in Queensland and I would see the lawnmower come out of the shed and I would go and saddle my horse and go for a ride up the paddock. And I had this place that I used to go to <laughs> and it was just, it was like in the in the crook of a creek and there was, it was beautiful. It had this, um, stone wall and a trickling tr creek and a casserina tree and i used to just sit there <laughs> just sit there for like half an hour with my horse just looking and just not not even not saying anything not doing anything i used to just mm. sit there and take it in and it's not and i didn't know why i was doing it when i was a kid i used to just do it it used to make me feel good but as an adult now learning about mindfulness i mean hang on a minute 
I was practicing, that's practicing mindfulness. And it made me wonder how much of our modern society, is, like no one showed me how to do that, how much of our modern society with our devices and everything that's going on, how much of that is impacting on children's ability to do something which may actually be a natural process that we're now having to artificially or, or not artificially but physically and get the children to do something which might well have just come naturally to them anyway if they don't have all of the other factors impacting on their ability to, to have that time. Um, and I remember thinking, I actually do that and I do it all the time. I'll just sit and <laughs> someone said, oh, what would you like to do? What are you gonna do? I said, well, I think I might just sit and stare at the wall for a couple of hours because I actually, and I think that that's just yeah, I, I just tend to find somewhere quiet and just ponder and reflect. But I always reflect on what's happened, critical reflection. I think that's the only way or it's the best way for us to ensure that we don't ruminate about things. And I do this with students a lot when they make a mistake. And so what you need to do is reflect, but reflect properly, not just think about what happened because that's ruminating. Oh, I wish, oh, would have, should have, could have. Yeah. It's about, um, you know, think about what happened. Why did it happen? What would you do different? What do we know? What do I know that would have stopped that from happening? What am I going to do differently in the future so that I can then put it to bed and not ruminate about it and not feel guilty or not feel, not be, not do the would have, should have, could have, which I used to do a lot as a, when I was younger. Yeah. Now I just put stuff to bed and I think, okay, well, hmm, that wasn't what I wish I hadn't done that, but I can't change that. Mm -hmm. I've thought about it. I've truly reflected. And if that, if I was faced with that again, I will do this and I can put it to bed and not worry about it and move on. And I think that critical reflection, proper critical reflection is the best way to move on from things and not, and not be consumed with regret, remorse and guilt. Well, remorse is okay, but regret and guilt are the things that I think are really, um, really negative, real negative emotions that, that people carry with them for, you know, for a long time. And I think that it's really, I think if people truly learn to critically reflect, um, yeah, they would be able to cope with those sort of feelings a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. I think shame as well is a big one, isn't it? When you've... And shame, yes. Yeah, you know, Definitely. feeling feeling like... And I think healthcare especially, I mean, all, all aspects of healthcare really is... <laughs> It, it's a sort of area in which there is the potential to make quite serious mistakes and to to then really feel bad about things that you've done. Um, and if you yeah, let it kind of get out of control, it can really consume you for a long time. Um, mm. I think what you were talking Definitely. about there is that skill of being able to, to yeah, critically reflect and move on is, is such an essential one. And I think once you can master that, I mean, it's, it, it's so transformative for, I think for life in general, but obviously working in healthcare is really important. Mm. Um, something that I, yeah. I work on as well, you know, I think sometimes I'm better at that than others. So like, it's just, I find just weird things play on my mind sometimes. And that, you know, I might make yeah. what might seem like more of a mistake or like some learning point and I'll be kind of okay with that. And I'll do, you know, go through the same kind of process to you, but then there'll be little things like something I said or someone else said and, you know, I just, it'll almost be like, I think, why is my mind, what's going on here? Why is that such an issue? Yeah. Um, 
And yeah. sometimes, you know, I, I guess a lot of it comes down to your values. And, you know, if, you, if, you've, um, if you've acted in a way that is the, the sort of antithesis or the opposite to the kind of person mm-hmm. you want to be. Mm. Um, and I think yeah definitely I think it's there's cognitive a cognitive dissonance sets yes. in <laughs> yeah absolutely it's not good no yeah um so I just want to talk so it, with nursing in general something I'd be really interested to hear mm-hmm. your thoughts on are I know with with different professions there is the the person or the, the public opinion of what that profession is and how people look and what they do and nursing will be one of those things you know people have experience of nurses and nursing um if you don't mind it'd be great to to just talk a bit about what actually nursing is like so maybe what what people probably see or what they think it's like and maybe what some of the kind of hidden things are that people might not realize about the realities of nursing Yes, okay, the reality of nursing. So let me preface this with the reality of nursing is not Grey's Anatomy. You're not going to have five good-looking doctors helping you mobilise your patient to the toilet. It just doesn't happen. Um, I think one of the things that our society fails to do is give healthcare workers, who aspiring healthcare workers, a really good um, idea of what to expect. And nursing is... Nursing is wonderful. It's probably, I can't imagine ever going, I can't imagine never having chosen nursing as a career. It's, you get to do everything as much or as much as you would like. You can just the, to hold someone's hand when they're upset, to hold someone's hand when they're scared. So nursing is about being, um, it's about being a mentor and an educator where I am now, but it's also about being a. It's also it's also about being a. So I guess the reason I chose nursing is uh, I. It's almost vocational for me. I can't even remember when I first decided I wanted to be a nurse. I can't. I just felt like I was always going to be a nurse. I thought about being a phys ed teacher and, uh, for a very short period of time because I had a crush on my PE teacher when I was in about grade ten. Um, and so, but that, that went when he went and I went straight back to nursing. And I think just being a carer, caring for people is, um, I guess that's the, that's the bare bones of it, isn't it? But there's, it's from, and it depends, it's, it's just so wide. It's, as I say to, nurse, to the students, nursing is not just about working in a hospital. You can be a mm. school nurse, you can be a district nurse, you can be an occupational nurse, you can be a nurse educator, there's so many, so many different facets to it. But nursing at the, at the end of the day is about caring for people. It's not about having the skill to stick a needle in someone or whatever. It's about being able to put a needle into someone, needle into someone and reassure them as you're doing it. It's about being able to, um, it's about being able to care for someone who's dying. It's about being able to care for someone who, has, who is a relative of someone who's um, dying. It's about um, supporting your colleagues who are, in, who are in difficulty. It's about so many different things. Um, and part of it is about coping with death, dying, and this, all of the sadness that goes with that. And sometimes, sometimes that stays with you forever. And it's about also having, being able to 
being able to live with that, I guess, for the rest of your life because you can't unsee things and you can't unhear things, you can't unsmell things, you can't... And it's so... There's so many, so many facets to nursing. I can't even... You, know, you could write a book, I think, about all of the, all the things that you could experience in caring for people. Yeah. Um, it's about listening to stories of knowing that you... I, there's a patient that I was participated in... Um, a cardiac procedure with him and he had a, a, a coronary stent put in and everything went well and then he went home that the next day and his wife woke up next to him dead the next morning he was dead in the bed next to her the next morning hearing things like that um seeing dead babies you know babies who've come in and can't be resuscitated because they've died from SIDS um and it's about it's about the satisfaction of seeing someone get better and walk out the door when you've been a part of that. It's about the satisfaction of knowing that you were part of someone who's caring for someone who died, but the satisfaction that you get knowing that you made that person as comfortable as possible and held the hand of their relatives or put your arm around their relatives as they were watching their loved one die. Um, yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about seeing... Um, a large amount, it's about seeing trauma, it's about witnessing trauma, it's about being a part of that and it's about supporting. I think it's a, if you, the biggest thing is just supporting and then it comes back to nursing is caring, mm. caring for people. So I think that's, uh, yeah. It, that's, there's the whole spectrum of emotions involved, isn't there, by the sounds of it? It's Absolutely. Yeah. It's joy, it's sadness, it's grief, it's horror at yeah. times. That you see some horrific things, you smell some horrific things. I've got a little sign on my door that says, you know you're a nurse if you can identify that smell in two whiffs. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I know last time we were, we were talking um, a little bit more about trauma and stuff, weren't we, in nursing? And um, mm. I'd just like to yeah. talk, a bit, talk a bit more about that. Um, would you say that, as you just mentioned, there are some traumatic things that you experience as a nurse. Is that something that mm. is not really discussed within nursing between nurses very often? I think it's being discussed more. Yeah. but not enough, and it no. certainly wasn't in the past. So, um, you know, as I told you in our last chat about the, you know, I was 18 years old and I was on night shift working in the medical ward and I got the call they needed someone to go and help in the emergency department. Off I run and thinking it's going to be something really exciting, something's coming in, it's going to be something in recess one in the emergency department and I run in there, open the curtains and I'm faced with a three-month-old baby who's dead and people are, and they're trying to resuscitate the baby and thinking, oh, my God, I wasn't prepared for this and you sort of go into autopilot and the baby couldn't be resuscitated and um, I was a second-year student nurse at the time. I was hospital trained, so I wasn't a university student. I was training in the hospital. And um, after protracted, obviously, went on and on because you're not going to give up on a baby um, anytime soon, so it went on and on. And so probably an hour later, um, the it was called a death and I was just told to go back to my ward. Okay, go back to your ward, all finished. And that stayed with me forever. 
um, that was when I was 18 and it took me until I was 40 to have a baby and that baby died of SIDS and when I had my first baby I thought that that baby was going to do every night every time even in the daytime I thought is she going to stop breathing and and I didn't realize at the time but that's hang on that's actually post-traumatic stress disorder but because we didn't there was no debriefing and I think that Back in those days, we um, we dealt with trauma by partying. <laughs> we we all got together and we went out and partied and we laughed about stuff, yeah. and we kind of didn't didn't address the stuff that was that was traumatic. And um, and I remember another um, time I looked after a young guy, a young boy. Well, he was um, probably teenager. He was a teenager, and he was in the intensive care um, where I worked, and he'd been flown down from Papua New Guinea. Uh, because he was seriously ill. And he died when I was looking after him. But I'll never forget the just the grief that I felt of just watching this boy over a period of days looking after him. Just I just felt so much grief at this boy dying and family being there. But who's going and I was thinking, who's gonna look after these these this family who are away from home? They they're from Papua New Guinea and there's other family and I've I've that stayed with me forever as well and I still I can still see I still see their faces I guess is is what um, mm. I still see their faces and I still feel the same I still feel the same sort of sadness when I think about them um, I feel like I've put it I've, I managed I manage that now but I think that the fact that I still I still feel sadness about it I should have I should have been able to, it should have been discussed more at the time. We should have been debriefing more. And I think debriefing does happen now, but I still think, I think that it can be done better. And we do talk a lot, there's a lot of talk in the media about the, you know, the first line um, health professionals, so police, or first line emergency workers, so AMBOs, uh, paramedics, police, firefighters, and um, the post-traumatic stress, but not much is spoken about with nurses and doctors. So that that second line, and and then well, what about the other healthcare workers? There's the social workers, the physiotherapists, OTs. They still see um, a lot of this stuff as well. They're still looking after people who who die, but there's not a lot. There's not a lot of focus on post-traumatic stress disorder of, of people working in the hospitals, and I think that I would really like there to be more focus on that. And not take the focus away from those other healthcare workers, but just include include other um, healthcare workers in the discussions about it because we do all see things that are traumatic, and we all feel feel we all feel that grief when um, someone we've, we've cared for is distressed or dying or in pain. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of ironic almost in a way that your job and everyone knows that some of these roles are around caring and part of caring there's an emotional component to that yet at the same time there isn't the space um or kind of drive to actually allow those people to to express and discuss the emotional load of what they're doing it kind of it just feels a bit like a a sort of yeah a weird irony to me that, that, that that is the case yeah we do the caring who's caring for us yeah yeah and we were talking about that we tend to uh, yeah sorry no go on you go ahead 
Oh, well, we tend to, yeah, we tend as, as carers because it's our innate, our, in our innate nature to be carers is why we chose the, chose the job that we choose. We tend to forget about ourselves and we see someone in need and we go and help that person instead of focusing on, on our own needs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Comes with the territory, I suppose. And what do you do then in your um, own personal life to, to make sure you sort of soothe yourself? Like you've mentioned a little bit about recently you try to uh, just sleep and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any other ways that you, you consciously think, okay, I'm going to try and be kind to myself here. I'm going to, um, you know, yeah. What, what else do you do? Well, there's so little time now. With since having kids, I don't do a half of the things that I used to before I had kids. And mm. so, um, I used to go bushwalking a lot, and um, I used to go horse riding a lot, and I used to play netball. And I used to, I used to, I used to a lot of things that I used to do, which I really have to. I'm the, I'm the worst at looking after myself. I put the needs of my kids first. I'm looking after the farm, I'm looking after the students. And so, yeah, I've only just recently started to, like I said, get more sleep and read a book. Uh, I need to, so, um, get out and ride my bike. So I've got some plans uh, that I'm putting into practice mm-hmm. now, and that is do more, do more bushwalking. I live in the bush, so I should, um, and get out and ride my bike, which is on the stand behind me. I probably it would be good if I could actually get out on that in the bush as well. Um, but I do enjoy um, just going out and feeding feeding the animals on the farm. So I've got sheep and I've got cows and I've got horses and chooks and a dog and a cat that I don't really like. Um, but I've got lots of animals and so. <laughs> What's wrong with the cat? <laughs> oh, he's just, he's just a, oh, I don't know, I call him the scumbag. <laughs> he's, all he wants to do is eat and he's just, he's a real farm cat and he's a bit of a psychopath and he's a bit of a psycho. He'll scratch your face off if you, if you try and give him any affection i just find him a bit annoying i'm not a cat person i've got a labrador so she's right. very I, I love her yeah but um just being out with the animals is really therapeutic there's a reason i think there's a reason why um animals are used so much in therapy there's a very good reason for that they yeah. are very therapeutic like my labrador's ears i always say it's just touching her ears is like therapy mm. um and you know i've got a thoroughbred mare and she's just you know touching the muzzle of a of a horse is like velvet and that's really therapeutic i think just i think just being able to derive pleasure from the simplest things like what is in nature i can get high on this is such a beautiful afternoon or i can get high um you know looking out at the lambs playing you know we've got a couple a half a dozen lambs at the moment just watching them play i can get pretty high on life doing that so i think that being able to yeah derive that enjoyment from those really simple things is really is so beneficial yeah Yeah. absolutely i think it's like you're saying before when you were younger that you know things seemed a bit simpler back you know i mean Mm. even from i remember in my childhood as well i would just go out live next to some woods back in the uk and We'd spend hours just over there playing with friends. We'd go for bike rides. There, and there'd be 
lots of things that were just much more in nature and we didn't i didn't have phones and that sort of thing and it was um Ooh. just some of these simple experiences that were just so rewarding and and just so pleasurable i feel like i've re- kind of returned yeah. to that that now after you know sort of being more consumed by technology and various things now trying to strip that back a bit and you know just trying to yeah be a bit more yeah. mindful and and um animals is I mean, I don't own any pets, but I actually I was having a conversation with um, a doctor the other day who was on, on the podcast and he was telling me that his dog um, was one of the things that basically kind of sort of saved him during his medical training, you know, coming home and having his dog yeah. there, having that kind of yeah. connection and love with his dog has just, just been so helpful mm. for him. Yeah, so you've got no pets of your own? No. no. I've got a cat that I can get. I've got a cat for you <laughs> if you would like a cat. Oh poor cat! Oh dear! Oh, he's all right. He's got a he's got a great life here, um, but yeah, he's not my he's not my favourite animal. Um, but yeah, you're right. That that doctor with his dog. There's just, just there's just something about the the relationship that animal that people and dogs have. If you're a dog person, if you like dogs, yeah. it is really it's just. It's so therapeutic. I had a Labrador for 10 years prior to this one and we um, had to put her down. Uh, she got cancer. And the time between when we, when Charlie had to be put down and getting um, Roxy, my current Labrador, I've had Labrador since I was three years old, was just, it was just gut-wrenching. So like you look around and all of a sudden she's not there. And it was, it's just like losing, it was like losing a family member. Well, it was losing a family member losing dog is, is you do lose a family member and so yeah i find um dogs very therapeutic but anything you know the grass is green the sky is blue the trees got leaves on them yes yeah. you know i can get mental health from any of that yeah and all this stuff has existed forever and it's always just around us isn't it it's free mm. as well which is yeah. <laughs> just a great thing right. exactly it costs nothing yeah exactly <laughs> Um, so something else that I'd, I'd love to just talk about is last time we, I think towards the end of our conversation, we started talking a bit about, um, gender and men and women in nursing. You were talking to me about um, the differences. Yeah. Mm. And I think, so something I was thinking about before today that I'd like to ask you would be, um, so, you know, you've, you've risen up and you've had various leadership roles within nursing. I'm interested because obviously within nursing, I know that there is a minority of, of men, but is there a um, disproportionate number of men then who are in higher leadership roles? And like, what's your experience been of, um, of being a, a woman and rising through those sorts of ranks and maybe competing or competing with other, uh, other males? Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because men do, do grab, and it's, it's, no, it's documented that um, men in nursing, while there's a disproportionate number of men in nursing in general, um, men versus women, um, men do tend to gravitate towards uh, certain aspects of nursing. And that's like ICU and emergency, flight nursing, emergency flight nursing. They're really um, heavily, uh, um, have lots of males choose that, but also in management, oh, in mental health, but also in management. So um, certainly men tend to move into management roles. And I saw recently, because I was writing a paper with some colleagues about um, men in nursing, and I was reading some articles and um, some studies showing that even 
that you know the gender divide in pay we hear about it all the time men get paid more than women it seems like men in nursing still get paid more than women in nursing because they tend to move into those um, higher paid roles so they get the management roles and often in the management roles they're getting paid more than their female counterparts and I was I found that quite surprising because I've never felt that like I've worked in um, specialties in nursing that are that do have like have, that are highly represented by men so 10 years in intensive care and then in the cardiac catheter laboratory where um, men tend to um, often gravitate into there as well and in education and management I've never felt I've never felt any sort of competition but there, there's it, it's spoken about a lot I've never felt that I had to compete with men for um, in any nursing roles, I always think that it's about you get you get where you go on merit. It's got nothing to do with gender. I got where I've gotten because I was good at my job, and if someone else got a job over me, it's because they were better at it than me, and that's always a good thing too. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't find that I've ever had to compete mm -hmm. with um, men in nursing. Um, I wonder if men feel though that they have to compete very heavily to get where they want to be in nursing because of the high representation of females. Mm. And so it's quite likely that while those of us females in the role don't have to compete, I think that men would feel, my feeling would be that men would um, feel it necessary to compete and compete hard to get what they want in nursing because of the female representation. And maybe that's why there are more men in those higher paid roles because they've had to work really hard to get into them, um, competing with us women, us highly driven females in nursing. <laughs> so yeah. maybe, I don't know. But I, I would like to see more men in nursing and I would like to see, um, I would like to see the public stop looking, saying, calling male nurses male nurses <laughs> and just calling them nurses. They're nurses yeah. and they're men. And I would like to stop seeing... Uh, <laughs> movies like um, Meet the Parents, which is a great movie um, where, you know, Greg Fokker is a nurse and they say, well, what, you're not smart enough to be a doctor? And he spent, you know, a large part of that movie was about him proving that he was smart enough to be a doctor, but he chose nursing. <laughs> yeah. It'd be really great if if guys were, like, if, if men were accepted in nursing exactly the same way that women are and valued and for there to be the same amount of um, the same amount of public outrage that there is, I would like to see the public outrage that is directed towards the lack of women on the front bench. I would like to see the front bench of Parliament. I would like to see that same outrage directed at the lack of men in nursing. So I think that it's a real shame that there's that um, that gender divide in nursing that is try they're trying to repair in other in other professions where the gender divide is where women, there's less women. There's not the same outrage when there's less men in nursing. Yeah. And I'd like to see that change. Before we talked, talked about that before, I hadn't even really thought about that, that kind of reverse kind of um, mm -hmm. issue there. Yeah. yeah. And um, I... Well, yeah. And guys don't though, Nathan. Like people are outraged. People are outraged if something is said in detriment to women but if the same thing is said and it's detrimental to men men don't jump up 
as they should, and say, well, hang on a minute, if, if that was said about a woman, the public would be, there would be public outcry. Why isn't there the same public outcry when it's said about a man? Mm. But, yeah, the, it's, uh, so it's a double just standard, a shame, I think. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you one last question. I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I'm going I'm to ask you one last, <laughs> one last question. Um, looking back at your younger self when you were perhaps first doing your training years ago, what, what advice would you, or what message or advice would you, would you give to yourself when you, perhaps when you were first doing your nursing training? Mm, right. So I've got two favourite sayings that I live by. One of them is less about that. So one, I love Truman, you know, President Truman. He had all these great quotes. So one of my favourite quotes of his is, it's amazing what can be achieved if no one cares who gets the credit. So mm. my, I sort of live by that. Okay, I might have a good idea. Someone stole it. Big deal. As long as, as, long as the job gets done, mm-hmm. I don't care whether I get credit for it. I just want to see that. So there's that. But I think the most, the, the biggest one for me is the standard that we walk past is the standard that we accept. Um, and so that is something that I... I would, I've learned that in later life, but I've always, I've always strived, I think, to, to make things better. If I see something that I think is wrong, I want to fix that. When I was younger, I just didn't feel like I always had the toolkit to do that. Um, it's great being older and wiser and having the skills to now go, you know what, I can fix that. I'm not happy with that and I don't want to see that as a standard. I want... I want the standards to be higher than that. And I think that that's, but that is, that's the message that I give to certainly student nurses when I teach them in the classroom about, because one of the things in nursing is um, there's a lot more motivators to choose nursing now. Like there's, the pay is better. Like when I chose nursing, there was only one reason that you would choose nursing, and that is to care for people. There was no other motivators. The pay was rubbish. Mm. The, you didn't get treated very well. You worked a rotating roster that you had to arrange your life around, not the other way around. Now the pay is pretty good. You get treated really well on the whole because you're not allowed to be treated like crap anymore. Mm-hmm. And you got really flexible rostering and so there's a lot more motivators to choose nursing other than just caring and so I really try and bring the students back to what's the, what's your first motivator what was the what's the one thing what's our common goal and our common goal is caring for people um, and in saying that if you see people delivering care that is substandard if you walk past that that's the standard that you think is acceptable yeah. and so that's yeah, the standard you walk past is the standard that you accept. Now, it's, that's not my quote. That's actually a quote from um, a healthcare service in Britain that uh, there was a, they had a major overhaul, and that was a that was a quote that came out um, that the CEO of that the new CEO, I think, of that healthcare service created. But I loved it so much, I had it put on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have these reminders, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. That'd be great if you could send the mug yeah. back to yourself when you're in your twenties <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's 
Oh, that's, 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 is that what you were asking? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's, yeah. That's, that sounds like fantastic advice. And I think, and it's not just sort of personal <laughs> advice to yourself, is it? I think that's just such a great one, you know, the, especially the mm. um, walking, you know, that's the standards. That's, that's such a great way to think about things is, um, you know, for, I suppose for nursing, but other people as well, you know, if you're just going to, if, if, you, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to let that slide, if you're going to just ignore that or let that go on, then that's, that is the standard that you're willing to accept. And um, often yeah. that is probably not the standard that we really want to aspire to. So, well, look, it's yeah, been... and I think that I was like, yeah, I guess it just thinking about that, it, it just gives us a little bit more courage to, if you, if we take ownership of it, then it gives us more courage to be the, you know, to be the driver of change, I suppose, because mm. it's then if you say that, oh, well, I guess I accept that standard. No, I don't accept that standard. And that it's a good driver yeah. to um, facilitate change. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Alicia, it's been a lot of fun talking to you again. And thank you so yeah. much. Thanks thank so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Nathan. It's been great. Bye-bye. Wow, how good was that? I loved Alicia's wisdom at the end there, and it very much reminded me of the days I worked in hospitals alongside nurses. I hope this was an interesting lesson for people. I listened back to this episode again whilst doing a spot of therapeutic painting. Don't get the impression I'm an artist, though. This is painting the wall of our office room at home. Very enjoyable, listening back to the conversation and sweeping that brush over the wall. So if you're a healthcare provider listening to this, then you may be like many people in the field who suffer from stress and the toll of the job, as was kind of covered in this conversation. As a psychologist, I feel it's always good to remind people to get in touch with your GP if you're experiencing anxiety, depression or other things like sleep problems, issues with your appetite, just high stress levels or perhaps feeling like you're drinking too much as a result of the way you're feeling. So if you're feeling like that, then first stop, go to the GP and let them know. If things aren't so severe, but you're keen to work on your own self-care, then feel free to reach out to me. My individual coaching helps healthcare providers start living better and re-engage with their lives. Next year in 2021, I'll also have some exciting online group-based programs coming out for nurses, so feel free to check out my website too at www.nathanillman.com. So I'll leave things there for today, and don't forget to check out my next episode, landing in two weeks, or perhaps not two weeks, because if you listen to this any other day than the release date, it's not going to be two weeks, is it? Who cares? Regardless, just look out for episode six. It'll be there soon. Have a great rest of your day. Bye from me.